Well, amen. It is good to be with you here this morning. We are in the book of Isaiah. Just FYI, we'll be in it for a few more months, and then we're off for the summer, kind of. We're going to be doing a different book, uh, but then we come back to Isaiah in the fall. So, beautiful. So, our sermon series is Salvation Belongs to the Lord, which is true. If you're ever to experience true salvation uh, and the happiness and the hope that comes with it, it must come from the Lord. Today's sermon is titled, Taste and See That the Lord is Good. Um, earlier, Paula read from that wonderful Psalm 34, where, we, where the psalmist speaks of God's amazing goodness um, and cries out, taste along with me and see that the Lord is good. Before we begin, let me, let me open in prayer. Father, we know in our heads and we've experienced in our hearts your goodness. Our lives are not the same because you sent your son into this world and you sent the spirit of your son into our hearts. We are now alive in Christ Jesus and this can never change. Nothing we can do can take that delight away. But we confess that we often stray. We forget of your goodness. We thank you that you do not let us wander far for long and that you call us back. And in the end, we taste and see afresh that you are good. So help us through Isaiah to understand this. Um, so may we walk out of here with not just heads, but hearts that truly delight in you. Amen. <clears throat> when I was a boy, I'm not making this up, my mother was the recipe judge for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper. Every few months, hundreds of recipes would land on her lap. Now, how did she, how did she judge them? Well, she didn't go out and buy all the ingredients and, and make every recipe. No, she looked at the ingredient list and the ratio of ingredients and the preparation and the cooking process and, and then declared a winner. She never even cooked a single recipe. I kind of always thought that was crazy, right? It seemed so prone to overlook like a sleeper recipe, like, like chocolate chip cookies. That was a total accident, right? Semi-sweet chocolate and cookies? No way. Think this through. It's really hard to get excited from a recipe card. For instance, here's a recipe card. It's got its name covered over it. It calls for apples and sugar and cinnamon and cloves and ginger. Not many mouths start watering from that recipe card, but when you see the finished product, Oh, sorry, I'm doing this at lunchtime. Doesn't that look yummy? Maybe a little ice cream. It makes you want to sit down and do this. <laughs> God speaks to his people through Isaiah back then. And he speaks to us today and says, taste and see that I am good. 
Stop it with limiting your understanding of me to some recipe card in a dark cupboard. Head knowledge isn't a bad thing. God wants us to know him conceptually in our heads. But there are two ways that we know God, conceptually and experientially, with our heads and with our hearts. God has made us to know him at both levels. It's like and like digging into a warm piece of apple pie, it is the heart sense of knowing God that effectively moves us, right? Our hearts is where the traction is gained for the Christian life. And God becomes incredibly tasty to our souls when we experience the power of his hope in our lives. Isaiah shows us something that should both unnerve us and delight us. Listen, understand this. God will not let his people relegate him to a recipe card. He will do whatever it takes, even bringing calamity to his people so that they might delight in him. And yes, he does this today. God is right and good to his people when he causes events in our lives that take us deeper into the reality of God to move us from living with God as a lucky charm to moving towards being our only hope, to move from living with God as theoretical to God as our greatest concrete reality. When God is simply relegated to be a concept in your head, he will be functionally unreal to you during life's crisis. So Isaiah speaks to us today, and he helps us to answer an important question. When God feels unreal, how do we find our way back to him? Isaiah's answer is that the grace of God lands firmly on your taste buds so that our hunger and thirst is for the Lord. And Isaiah shows us that, through God, that though God's people will wander from him, he will bring them, them back to him so that they will taste and see that he is good. What Isaiah is telling God's people back then and he's telling us today, today is that God alone is satisfying every hour of every day in every, in all circumstances of life. So therefore, because God alone is satisfying, we must set our hearts and our hopes on him. We'll look at this under two headings. First, God's gracious confrontation and then God's messianic king who changes everything. First, God's gracious confrontation. In grace, God confronts our folly. Do you understand that? Are you okay with that? God will not let his people keep him at arm's length. He will orchestrate events in our lives so that we come to delight in him more and more. And this is good. This is a grace of God for us. And that is what God did in Isaiah's day our first little slice of the passage is Isaiah 31, 1 through 5. Here we go. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, 
and he who has helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill, like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Remember the leaders in Jerusalem are shaking in their boots. Assyria is threatening to overrun them. They determined to find help anywhere, anywhere but God. So they turned to Egypt for help, and kind of makes sense. Egypt has a lot of chariots and horsemen for hire. But God speaks woe upon those who go down to Egypt and rely on horses. So a good question before us this morning is why? Why is it wrong to seek help in Egypt? Why is God so upset when they did this and when we do this? The answer is seen in the second half of verse 1. Woe to those who do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Judah was not looking to the Lord or asking him for any help. They lived with God as a concept in their heads, but he was not a reality to be savored in their hearts. Ray Ortland Jr. writes, God wants us to trust him in ways that count so that he can prove himself to us in ways that count. We can think of Egypt as a cipher for anything that we need outside of the promise of God. That is what was wrong with Judah going down to Egypt. On the Sabbath, they sang Psalm 20, which includes these verses. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We too can sing, great is thy faithfulness on Sunday and by chariots from Egypt on Monday. Like the ancient people of God, we can expect little from God. And so when hardship and upheaval toss our clean, happy lives on end, we start to scramble, do we not? We start listing out anything and everything that we could turn to for help. Anything and everything, except the Lord who loves us. And so we find ourselves in a crisis, and at our wit's end, we feel back in, backed into a corner. I think most of you know what this is like, right? But what we need to recognize is what Isaiah teaches in our text. Listen, he's saying, Assyria is not your greatest crisis. Your greatest crisis is your unbelief in God. In our passage, we see that God is in control. In verse 3, we read, God is wise and brings disaster and how he will rise up against the house of the evildoers. Listen, God will let us experience the failure of our idols as he crushes our idols right before our eyes. Why does God do this? So we stop trusting in chariots to deliver us. We see this in the odd words of verse 3. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. Isaiah is stating what is obvious. 
Egyptians are simply human beings and not God. Their horses are flesh, not the spirit of God, who moves in power on behalf of the people of God. Isaiah wants us to see that when we turn and trust to human saviors, we will fail to experience the goodness of God and his salvation. In verses 4 and 5, Isaiah shows us something about God's character, that when we understand it, he becomes really sweet to our souls. What is it? It's God's covenant faithfulness. What does that mean? What is that? Well, from an earthly perspective, you would expect God to say to his people, good riddance, I'm done with you. You guys like really stink. Like I give you a few things to do and you can't even do them. I'm here to love you and you run. Isn't that kind of how we process abandonment? When people reject us, we like we reject them. Done with them. But not so God. God has entered into a covenant of faithfulness and love with his people. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. A contract provides the terms for you to sever the relationship if the other person fails to uphold their end of the bargain. Think of like a cell phone company contract that you sign. A covenant, on the other hand, says that you will be faithful to your husband or your wife, whether they uphold their part or not. Listen, God has promised to bless his children even when they fail to uphold their part. This is how God loves us in Christ Jesus. This is covenant love. We fail. We act in faithlessness. But because God will never leave us nor forsake us, because of his covenant love for us, because it is sealed in the very blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, we experience his eternal love. So God tells the people at the end of verse 4, he says, he was expecting to say, like, I'll be a roaring lion in your presence. No, he says, I will be like birds hovering. I've come in down to fight like birds. In my mind, I just keep thinking those seagulls in the summer that come down and, like, attack your bag of chips on the beach. But not that. Something similar. <laughs> I will protect Jerusalem and spare it and rescue it. This is God's promise. Do you understand that? His people have been faithful. They want to run after, after Egypt for help. And God says, don't worry. There's a day coming. I'm, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to come and rescue this city, even though you don't deserve it. My friends, this is the marvelous, lavish covenant love of God to wayward, self-absorbed people like you and me. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Verses 6 and 7 speak of the enjoyable thing we get to do after God humbles us in our folly and expresses his covenant love towards us. What do we get to do? We get to repent and return to a life of joyful, hopeful, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Verses 6 and 7. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel, for in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. If you've been a Christian, even for just like the littlest bit of time, then 
Some of your most delightful and most satisfying experiences in life have been when you get on your knees and you repent and you experience this covenant love and faithfulness of God, right? In grace, God confronts our folly so that we taste and see that he is good and we return to him. We return to living under his lordship. Now, the next section tells us what to expect when our Lord comes to rule, the Messiah King. You know, thankfully, the book of Isaiah isn't just about the waywardness of God's people living in a world opposed to God. It's also about the promised Messiah, the servant king. We've already covered some of these references in Isaiah chapter 7 and 9 when the promise of a child who would be born of a virgin and how he would be the wonderful Messiah king. We read in Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is no normal earthly ruler, right? It's not. It's not. It cannot be. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that? Isaiah 7 and 9? All throughout the book, especially in chapters 40 and thereon, we get glimpses of this Messiah King. And in chapter 32, we get this as well, verses 1 and 2. Behold, great word, a king will reign in righteousness and princess, princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. A beautiful imagery. This messianic king Isaiah writes about here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah is juxtaposing the power-hungry megalomaniacs who rule in the world and showing us how completely different Jesus is. He is a king who will reign in righteousness. That's the operative word. His righteous rule makes him a shelter in the storm. He is a king who comes not to be served, but to serve and offers life as a ransom for many. And did you catch that? Isaiah is saying that the Messiah's lordship is what makes us new and different. It turns us into royal nobility, princes and princesses, who, like our Messiah King, become a hiding place in this world from the wind and the shelter and the storm. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind. This isn't just our Lord, it's us who are being remade in his image. Do you see your relationship with Jesus this way? You and I, as Christ dwells in us, become for others a place of hiding from the wind, streams of water in a dry place, shade in a weary land. Do you see yourself this way? Now, this isn't so much us as it is Christ in us, right? 
It is the Holy Spirit working through us to love others and care for them and point them to Christ so that they may taste and see that the Lord is good. And the more we taste and see that the Lord is good, the more alive we are in Christ. And the more we bring his goodness to this sorrow-filled world. And how does this come upon us? It's another work of God's sovereign grace. Verses 3 and 8 tell us that the king changes us. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. The ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. Then here we go, verse 8. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. The flow of this section goes something like this. God's people were living with their eyes closed and their ears closed, but the Lord will change that. They will see that see the world as their Messiah King sees the world, full of what? Iniquity. People in power, living unconcerned lives for the needs of others, and injustice everywhere, so that the poor have no help. But God will make his people to be beautifully noble. Again, verse 8, but he who is noble plans noble things. You just write that on our mirrors when we wake up in the morning to remind us of who we are in Christ. The truth here is remarkable. This is you and me, changed by Christ, our noble king, to be nobility, princes and princesses who advance the kingdom. Do you see yourself this way? Do you see the divine nobility that you are now in Christ Jesus? You should, because you're now a new creation in Christ Jesus. Jesus is your elder brother. He's the king of all creation, which makes you nobility. Oh, not nobility in an earthly sense. No, you don't need to go out and buy a polo pony. (laughs) But nobility in the pattern of the Lord, our king. Nothing against polo ponies. You know, if I ever write a book, it will be on the three offices of Jesus and how we as Christians get to live out these three offices as well. The offices of Jesus are prophet, priest, and king. He wore three hats when he came to live and serve and die. Now, the issue with most Christians, myself included, is that we mostly wear the prophet hat, which means we are quick to declare whatever we see to be wrong with the world and the people we meet and the choices that people make. Sometimes we wear the priest hat. We pray for others. 
We help them to draw near to Christ. I think the least worn hat is that of king. Christ, our king, cares about kingly things, noble things, and so should we. He cares that the daily needs of his people are met. He cares for justice in the world and in our community. He cares for the cravings of the hungry and the thirsts of the thirsty, and not just in a spiritual sense. He stands for noble things and has noble plans and works to see them come to pass through us. Christian, the Lord has called you to nobility, a life of standing for noble and righteous just causes, a life of making noble plans and pursuing them. My friends, the king of righteousness that Isaiah wrote of 2,700 years ago has come. He is our hiding place from the wind, and until he returns or calls us home, our noble calling is to help others find shelter in him. The Lord is good, and we get to help others to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so how are we to respond today? I think Isaiah kind of knew the flow of things because our next section, we see that we respond by allowing this word from God to cause us to rise up out of our complacency. Right? I mean, I see it in myself. Some days it seems far more desirable just to pursue a life of ease. Maybe answer one less email put my phone on, do not disturb. You guys, you guys, of course you know how to do that. <laughs> I think it's an iPhone thing. Can you do it on the Androids? Can you? I don't know. Sorry, I don't mean to Android shame anybody. <laughs> I repent. There we go. Isaiah addresses our tendency towards complacency in verses 9 through 11. Rise up, you women who are at ease, hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare. Tie sackcloth around your way. All right, it appears that Isaiah does not like women, okay? Uh, But that's not the case, all right? He's depicting the state of the people in Judah. While the men are in the royal court, wringing their hands with worry, fretting over the impending doom that is coming upon them from Assyria, the regular citizens depicted by the wives of the rulers are, are gossiping at a spa day and finding bargains at TJ Maxx. They're not worried about anything. Ortland writes, listen, they represent a kind of happiness that will kill us, earthly contentment with no longings for God. Here's the point. The Messianic kingdom is no place for escapist, elitist, selfish materialism, but there is a way back to God. And his way out of our soul-destroying complacency, it's right before us here. We need to listen 
to the prophetic gospel with hearts so open that we accept even the hard truths calling us to change. Jesus' brother James spoke of this in chapter 4 of his letter when he said, be wretched and mourn and weep. How often has someone encouraged you to do that as a Christian? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That is what God calls the people to do in verses 12 through 14. They think everything is going fine as their fields are fruitful. The people are joyful. Instead, God says, beat your breasts, lament, be sorrowful, for your luxury will not last. Verse 12 through 14. Oh, there it is. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Perhaps your life is going pretty good right now. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. The Lord is good to give us seasons of, of quietness. We should delight in them. But let me ask you, have you become complacent with regards to Christ and his kingdom and his noble plans? Scripture states that with godliness and contentment, there is much gain. You know that, right, that passage? Isaiah says the opposite is true. With God avoidance and contentment, there will be much loss. The palace will be forsaken, the city deserted, donkeys and like wild turkeys will take over the city. Now, once again, we would expect God's response to the complacency of his people to be to just give up on them. Good riddance. But that is not the case. God promises a grace for us that is bigger than our folly. Remember, the major theme of the book of Isaiah is God triumphing in grace over our failure. In the next section, Isaiah shows how God will do this by pouring out his Holy Spirit. Isaiah describes this in the remaining verses, uh, verses 15 through 20. Oh, there it is. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness. It's normally not there. And righteousness abide in the unfruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide this very same people who are doing all this, my people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters 
who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. It's kind of a funny way of looking at it. All right, what's going on? Let me make a couple quick observations. We're almost done. What we see here is a reversal of all things, right? What appears to be a rebellious, faithless mankind ruling and imposing its unbearable hardship upon the world in a day to come, we will see the Spirit of God supernaturally dominating everything. This is another major theme in Isaiah. God is promising to pour out his spirit upon his people with life-giving abundance and the renewal of God's people by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's central to Isaiah's message. And oh, my friends, we need this renewal of the Holy Spirit. And not just small drops of the Spirit. Here Isaiah says the Spirit is poured upon us like mistakenly lavish. Like, did you really mean, God, to pour that much upon your people? Seems like a waste. Seems like some of it's dripping to the ground and drying up. No, I'm not that kind of God. I pour out my spirit upon my people. Ortland says this. He says, this is a deluge so overwhelming that it washes away all complacency like a flood and and, and replaces that counterfeit joy with real joy of peace, quietness, and trust forever. My friends, God kept his promise. Not that, that we're not longing for a greater fulfillment to come in the age to come, but he's kept this promise, and he's been doing it for over 2,000 years. This very Holy Spirit now dwelling in God's people is the source of our joy and delight even in the midst of hardship. Consider the words of Paul from the book of Romans. Some of you women are studying the book of Romans lately. Chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Here we go because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. My friends, the goodness of God has brought this about. And our response is simply to delight in this work and welcome the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is the way we are to walk. This is how we come to taste and see that the Lord is good. And when we do, we see this work of God for us. God moves to cut down our enemies and make us humble at the very same time. That's what verse 19 gets at. The forest is the nation of Assyria. God will send hail that causes the forest to collapse. And he did. But also the prideful people, the, the people of God will be laid low, made humble. Isn't this how our Lord operates? When God moves in this world, both his adversaries are conquered and his people humbly reminded of his glory and goodness. And we come to experience the overflow of God's abundant grace 
which is depicted in verse 20. Happy are those who sow crops beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. The picture here, listen, I don't know how many of you who've ever had a garden would be excited about a deer walking through it, right? No. Um, the picture here is such a bumper crop that the people don't mind if animals walk freely in their fields, making a mess of it. God is that good. In Isaiah's day, this would have been remarkable. They would have gone, no, we do not want large animals going through our crops. So can you understand what Isaiah is saying here? Isaiah is saying, this is how good God is. He is so fruitful in our lives. He overabounds to us in goodness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the noble things we have come to stand upon. So let us hope in the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for reminding us through these words that are so ancient but eternally true. You are the God who does not treat us as we deserve. We've been made to be princes and princesses of nobility. And yet we become complacent we thank you that in this very hour, you have shown us, by your Spirit, a new way. The way of the Spirit, the way of love, the way of our noble Savior, Jesus. May we be enlivened this morning to rest in him alone, to stop running to Egypt for happiness. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.